We're continuing our series um, from Luke. Um, I'm very grateful that uh, Alex, one of our deacons, is uh, preaching this morning. Luke chapter 13 on page 1047. Page 1047, Luke 13, um, from verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go and tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. So we're again back with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem this morning. Shall we say a quick prayer as we begin? Father, as we think on this passage this morning, we pray that you would show us ourselves and you would show us our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. We heard Jesus speak last week about the narrow door, the narrow door that leads to God's kingdom. And verses 29 and 30 in our passage last week set the scene for this week. Jesus says in those verses, people will come from the east and the west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, those who are last will be first, and first will be last. It's really quite a surprising thing for Jesus to say. He's basically saying that um, people from the whole world will be at this feast in heaven, not just Jews. And so some who are absolutely 100% nailed on certain to get to heaven won't, and some who have no hope of getting there will. Kind of leaves us with a bit of a question, doesn't it? What has caused these people, the ones that are certain to get to heaven, to fail to actually go through the narrow door to heaven? Is there some kind of deficiency in, in God's plan? that has led them to facing judgment rather than receiving his grace. And what about us? How can we be sure we find our way through that narrow door when we feel hopeless, far from God, full of sin? Our passage this morning will help us with this and other things. It will help us to see that there is actually no deficiency in God's plan to rescue and redeem, either the people who he was speaking to back then or to us. In fact, his mission To rescue us was unstoppable, and that gives us great hope. And his longing for his people also gives us great hope. And so we are to keep our hearts warm to him in all our circumstances. And these are the things we'll be 
thinking about this morning from this passage. We pick it up in verse 31. Um, and it immediately follows what Jesus has said about people becoming coming first and last. And here come some Pharisees. They come with a warning to Jesus. Go, get out of here. Your life is in danger. Now, we all know what should happen here. Jesus should up and go. He should leave the country, find a new job, change his mobile number, delete his social media. Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, the same ruler who beheaded John the Baptist. Jesus, he wants to kill you, so go. Well, you may be thinking, how nice are these Pharisees to warn Jesus? And judging from Jesus' response to them, it certainly sounds like they have some kind of inside information about what Herod is thinking. Or maybe they just wanted to see the back of Jesus because he was a threat to them. Get, get him out of our backyard, they thought. This is a good way of doing this. Well, whatever their motivation, Jesus' response is remarkable. Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. It's clear, isn't it, that Jesus fears neither Herod nor the Pharisees. He's saying, I will not be hindered by a cunning and deceitful king like Herod. I'm going to keep going, keep doing what I'm doing. And what were the things he was doing? Well, he tells us. It's loving people, isn't it? He's he's loving the oppressed. He's driving out demons. He's healing the sick and the hurting. And this is what Jesus is about. And in doing so, he was showing them his power. He was showing them that he is the one who has authority over all creation. And he was pointing them towards his kingdom, that great feast he spoke about, where there would be no oppression and no sickness. But his work doing that would stop, there was an appointed time for this particular work to finish. And Jesus says in this verse that it's on the third day. That reference to the third day probably confused the Pharisees a little bit. It wasn't referring to three days time. It wasn't actually even the first time that Jesus had used this phrase. Back a few chapters in Luke 9 verse 22, Jesus explains for his first time, for the first time to his disciples, that he will be rejected and killed And on the third day, be raised. So here, in the face of a death threat, we see our Lord saying, Herod will not cause me to stop doing my mission. I will keep on until the appointed time for me to die. Christ's mission is unstoppable. That's our first point. And so in verse 33, Jesus says, In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. How can Jesus' response be so determined in the face of this death threat? I mean, this Herod wasn't someone to mess around with. He was brutal. He'd had John the Baptist beheaded. And so we might be impressed by Jesus' response. I must press on. That's impressive, isn't it? He's, he's brave. He's completely focused on his goal, almost obsessed with his mission. Almost like, imagine Martin Luther King, determined in the fight for civil rights, brave brave in the face of severe opposition and death threats. And yes, Christ did maintain his focus. He wasn't distracted from what he came to do, but there is more to it than that, and it is this. Christ's mission wasn't just an idea he had thought up one day or a, a role he just happened to fall into, about a bit like I did with my job. 
Now, he'd been, this had been conceived with the Father and the Son in eternity past. Before God had created the world, he had purposed Jesus' life and death and resurrection to be the high point of history, the point at which he would reconcile all of creation to him, the point at which people could find forgiveness for their sins and hope everlasting. Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 25 when he says, he says the king, he's talking about himself there, will say to the righteous, come, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Did anyone really think that tiny King Herod would be able to stop short Christ's mission? Did anyone really think that tiny King Herod could scare Jesus with this meager death threat? No way. God is in control and, he's always, and he always has been. And it is certain that he will see his plans fulfilled. Of course he will. And that's why Jesus is able to respond in such a determined way. One author paraphrases Jesus' response brilliantly. He says, in a little time, my course will be finished. And I shall have done all the work completely. And till that time comes, it is not in Herod's power, nor yours, Pharisees, nor all the men on earth or devils in hell to take away my life or hinder me doing what I am about. We, 2,000 years later, well, we see that much more clearly, don't we? We're privileged. God's wonderful salvation plan was worked out. Nothing did stop Jesus from achieving his purposes on the cross. And in fact, nothing has stopped him from achieving his purposes since the cross. Jesus' eternal mission to rescue and redeem didn't just finish on that third day. His earthly ministry did, but his eternal one didn't. Now, after that, we we read in the Bible how he showed his disciples that the whole of the Old Testament points to him as the Messiah. In Acts, after Jesus goes back to heaven, we read how he sends the Holy Spirit to help his people and to equip them. And we can see how the good news has, of his mission to earth has spread across the whole world. And his church is growing. All the time, God is converting people. And then later on in the New Testament, we get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing right now. He's interceding for his people. He's praying for us. He's advocating for us in heaven. He's, he's active. And his unstoppable mission to rescue and redeem is continuing. Yes, so it's no longer directly on earth. And its focus has changed from the act of, of paying for our sins to the act of keeping us. And that's why we're in a privileged position. We can look back and see how Christ's mission to Jerusalem and the cross could not be stopped. It could not be stopped by Herod, the ruler of the land. It could not be stopped by the devil tempting Jesus, giving him an easy way out. It could not be stopped despite all kinds of opposition and threats. And so we find encouragement because part of this unstoppable mission is to keep us. Despite spiritual, physical opposition that we will face, despite threats being placed in front of us to reject Christ, despite our own sins and our own feelings of weakness and hopelessness, there is nothing that can hinder him from doing this work now. Nothing that can stop him keeping us until his return. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 
So back to the passage. Our second point, Christ's longing and his mission to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, end of verse 33 tells us. Jesus says, surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, Jesus didn't mean that no prophet had ever died outside of Jerusalem. Some, some had done, but he was employing a certain degree of irony. Jesus here, sorry, Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religion and worship, the place where God had poured out many blessings on his people, where he'd given them a city to protect them, where, he, where God's presence dwelt within the temple. These are the people that God has chosen to reveal himself to, to, to speak to, and he set them apart to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Yet, this city is also the most dangerous place to be a prophet of God. The people there kill those who speak God's word to them. They stone those that God graciously sends to help. It's shocking, isn't it, when we take a step back from that. Here are God's chosen people. Yet they choose to ignore God. Those God has, and those God has lovingly sent to help them. And it causes a deep reaction in Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And yet, despite this, Jesus, the next in a long line of prophets sent from God, but the prophet that all the other prophets have been pointing to, yet they would reject him. But his love for them is unchanged. Verse 34, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What a wonderful glimpse into the heart of our Savior. Christ's longing is to gather every single person in Jerusalem and every single Jew together and give them refuge under his wings to show them loving care and protect them and be close to them. Psalm 36, verse 7 explains, uh, 7 and 9 explains this really nicely. explains what it means to be under his wings. It says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your rivers of delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. This here is why God sent the prophets to his people because he longed for them. That's why Christ himself has come, leaving the glory of heaven, humbling himself to be their servant. He's come to, to rescue them, to remove the barriers that stop them from knowing them. And he wants them to flourish under his care. Such is his great love for them. Such is the heart of our saviour. And Jesus doesn't, change does he his, his heart doesn't change it hasn't changed since then he still longs to gather up his people to bring them all under his wings to gather them all together at that great feast we read about in the kingdom of heaven but now his people extend beyond who they were when he walked on earth they go beyond jerusalem and israel and the middle east Verse 29, again, of our passage last week says that people will come from the east and the west and north and south. Um, that, that's the whole world, isn't it? And will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. 
Or Revelation 7 verse 9. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb of course is Jesus. In fact isn't this a beautiful part of his mission? His mission would mean that all people from all over the world would be gathered. And that includes us here. In fact, in a sense, God has gathered us all here today. There are people from different parts of the world, different walks of life, and he has gathered us all here together as his church. Why? Well, to bless us, to speak to us, to love us, to give us that place of refuge, of safety, of peace. We sit here under his wings, but also to give us an image of what he will do one day for all his people across the world, to gather us together so that we can know him completely. Now, of course, the church is an imperfect picture of this because we are all imperfect. But that is part of what it means for us to meet together, to be together as the church. We'll move on to our third point in a moment, Christ's withdrawal and return. But before we do... It's great, isn't it, just to reflect on the kindness of the Saviour. He really longs for us. How wonderful to reflect on that glimpse into his heart. And he does really want us to take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Those verses from Psalm 36 again. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings They feast in the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Now thinking of these things as we move on to our next point. It would be natural for us to think that the Jews jumped at this opportunity. This opportunity to be gathered by the Lord and find refuge In his wings. Let us delight ourselves in his love, we could imagine them saying. But we know that they killed prophets and stoned those God sent. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at what we tragically read at the end of verse 34. And you were not willing. Jesus, sorry, Jerusalem, God's people, whom he'd chosen to set his heart upon throughout the Old Testament, were unwilling. Time and again to be gathered by God. It's one of the major themes of the Old Testament. God repeatedly calling his people, pouring out his love on them, asking them to turn away from their sins and rebellion, yet they're unwilling, or at least most of them, most of the time. One author comments on this, that perhaps in some sense God's willingness to gather his people aggravated their unwillingness. The heart of of love was met with hearts of cold, hearts that were cold with pride and apathy. And now we see Jesus lamenting over them. He's sorrowful because they're unwilling. And the outcome of their unwillingness, verse 35, look, your house is left to you desolate. What does Jesus mean here? Well, I think he's referring to the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God. The place where God has chosen for his glory to dwell. And what of it? Well, despite its incredible 
decoration, despite its size and prominence, despite all it is meant to represent, it was going to be left empty. At this time, of course, it was full of people doing their religious duty. There were plenty of them. But it was not always to be so. At some point, it would be left desolate. Maybe Jesus is referring here to what would happen when the, the Romans besieged it a few, in a few decades' time. The particular event doesn't really matter. What matters, though, is that God's presence was not to be found there. God was withdrawing from his unwilling people. And no wonder Jesus is lamenting the greatness of his love and his care for his people, yet their unwillingness to accept that leads God to, to withdraw. It appears that his presence has no value to his people, his unwilling people. They don't want to take refuge in him. And so the template, temple is to be left desolate. Thinking back to the narrow gate last week, surely these are the ones who will fail to pass through it. Perhaps they're very religious individuals, you know, the ones who practice all the right laws, say all the right prayers, do all the right things. And it's easy for them to develop a way of thinking that says they, they can earn them their way to heaven themselves. They don't need to be, to be gathered. They don't need refuge under his wings. They think of themselves as first in line. And we know what Jesus says to him in our passage last week, that in reality they are last because they do not know him or rather he does not know them to gather up. And so his unwilling people will not see Jesus. And they might see him physically, of course, if they just happened to be in Jerusalem when his journey there was complete. But they will not see him as the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, until, they say, end of verse 35, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, So they will at some point see him for who he really is. But when will that be? Those of you who know what happens when Jesus finally reaches Jerusalem will probably recognize those words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are words from Psalm 118. And the people shout them to Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey before his death. But Jesus, I don't think, is referring to that moment. Because we know that this same crowd a week later was stirred up to call for him to be executed. It wouldn't make sense, would it? That They see him as a Messiah one day, and then just a week later want him dead. They clearly don't want to be gathered under his wings. So perhaps it's more likely Jesus is pointing forward to other things, his return. We know that one day he will come back. He has promised it. And it's the day that every Christian and the whole of creation is longing for. The return of of our king to establish his kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us that every single person will see him on that day. And at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is blessed. And so those of God's people who are unwilling to be gathered by him will, on the day of his return, well, they will be convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one they were hoping for. Now, we, of course, long that our Jewish friends, neighbors, colleagues will realize it before that day and before it's too late. 
Indeed, we hope that many Jews will come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah before then and that they will do what their ancestors before them were not willing to do and be gathered up by Christ. But what does this passage mean for, for us, the people of God in this age? Well, we have to see this as a warning. It will be all too easy for us to fall into a similar trap as God's people have done throughout the ages, to, to stop listening to his voice, to stop reading his word, to ignore those prophets that we read of in the Bible that he sent long ago, who came to warn us and to point us ultimately to Jesus, to complete our religious duties, but, but to do so in such a way that our hearts are cold towards him and we find ourselves becoming unwilling. So we need to keep our hearts warm towards him, don't we? After all, he is our refuge and we've seen how much he longs to gather us, to show us loving care. We have to be the opposite of those who think they are first in line for heaven. We must remember that we do actually have nothing. We have no religious position to rest on. And yes, we may well appear last in line for heaven. And we may well appear and feel hopeless as though we've got nothing to offer God. But we recognize our complete dependence on our Savior. So let us be quick to reflect on that fact often. Let it permeate our prayers, our Bible reading, the way we love one another, the way we do our work, just everything. Let us remember that we are dependent on him. So that when the time comes for him to gather us, our instinct is to run straight towards him, straight under the shadow of his wings for all eternity. And for those of us here that don't follow Jesus, just, just an encouragement for you. We were all once in a very similar position to you. And we found Jesus' heart to us was warm. And he showed it to us in the most amazing way by, by coming down from heaven on this unstoppable mission to die for us. And, and his heart for you is the same. Do you see that? Do you see that? He longs to gather you into his people too, to give you love and care until his return and then forever. His unstoppable mission was for you. He came to save you, to forgive you of all your wrongdoings, to shelter you under his mighty wings so that you too may grow and flourish in him. So in exact contrast to his people long ago this morning, be willing. Be willing to come to him and be gathered by him. And we would, of course, be delighted with, to pray with you before we leave here today. I started this morning with a question. How can we be sure that we find our way through this narrow door, the door where few people enter? How can we be sure when we feel hopeless and far from God and full of sin. Well, Christ's mission to rescue and redeem was unstoppable. And it continues. Christ's longing for us overcomes our fears and our doubts that he is distant and cold towards us. Christ's withdrawal now up to heaven and his return back from there in glory to gather us together under his wings for all eternity. And so we are the willing. Now, I find this um, helpful as I've been preparing. 
at this, just to kind of stop for a moment and reflect on this passage. So I'm keen that we just spend a moment or two, just as we finish off, just to, to stop and reflect. And I hope that that moment of quiet will be um, helpful for, for you too. So we'll just spend a few moments in quiet. And then I'll finish with a song. And the band will come and lead us in our final song. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his mission to earth, which could not be hindered or stopped and leads us to being gathered together under your wings. Father, what a wonderful place to find ourselves. Father, we have nothing to offer to you but our willingness, and we are willing this morning. And so we pray that we will find the encouragements in this passage of blessing, and hear the warnings as well, that we would have warm hearts towards our Saviour and look with great hope to being gathered by him for all eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.